as I read this morning's scripture passage. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety or godliness, the idea is, at home, and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she, who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well-respected or well-excuse me, well-reported for good works, if she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's watched the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, and if she's diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they've begun to go wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith or first pledge. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. And Father, we just humbly ask for the gracious help of your Holy Spirit to continue in an attitude of worship now by being attentive to what your Holy Spirit would say to us through the word of God. Lord, speak by your Spirit through what you've already spoken here in the word of God. We ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is fair to say that God is into a family-first approach. And what I mean by that is us responsibly taking on the responsibility to take proper care of our own families. At times, both natural families and the church family, spiritually, which we are, does need to determine how to navigate helping out people, even in the area of assisting people, perhaps financially or practically. And I think in this passage, we really learn some great lessons here of how to take care of family. As we've been talking about with 1 Timothy as a study through this letter, we talked about how this letter in the Word of God deals primarily with how the local church is to operate. Paul specifically said, this is how you're to conduct yourself in the house of God. So it's a letter about how the local church is to function in lots of different ways. And here this morning in chapter 5, we get instruction regarding how the church is to determine when as well as how to go about helping those in financial need or those maybe in financial distress or difficulty, 
how families are to take care of their own relatives and wise ways to navigate this using, as we see here, criteria to decide best practices, not just randomly nor rashly just giving away money to someone who pulls on our emotional heartstrings with some severe need or financial distress, but actually using discernment and qualifying if it is a right situation to do such. If you look with me back in verse 3, the section opens by Paul saying, honor widows who are really widows. Now, when he says really widows, he's not implying they are somehow deceiving. He's going to talk about a particular widow in a certain category that needs to be assisted in a certain way. He advises here, starting out in verse 3, that it is God's heart to truly help and to genuinely support those who have a sincere financial need in right occasions. And let me just say, the reason he begins to go into this section was because in the early church and among the ancient culture, typically that category were predominantly widows or orphans. We see a lot about widows and orphans from Old Testament to New Testament, and here he says, honor those widows. Now, when he says honor there, that does not just mean show respect towards, but you can clearly tell from the word used and the way the context flows, he's not just talking about honor in the sense of showing respect, but even more displaying practical care in an honorable way. So he's describing a respectful, honorable attitude that then translates into actually acting upon that in such a way that you do something to honor them by caring for them through a practical expression, supplying financial or some other form of service to help. It's where we get our word today, may recognize the term honorarium. And an honorarium is typically referred to as some form of a financial gift, maybe to bless a speaker or a guest speaker for the work that they did by coming and speaking at an event or maybe speaking as a guest speaker at a church. And a honorarium is usually a check or a financial gift to, to kind of bless them for that work that they came in and did. Now, that's the word that's actually used here. So it's speaking of honoring in a sense of not just, again, the attitude but actually some form of action where you do something practically to help. And notice he says, honorably care for with financial assistance or support, he says, those who are really widows. And we're going to see from the context of the passage, he's implying widows who are truly left alone. That is, they're abandoned. They have no natural family to help them. They're in a difficult situation. He's going to describe some criteria further as we go through they're individuals who are widows without help or support available. They are unable to work to accrue resources that they need or perhaps even unable to marry again. And in the ancient culture, widows and orphans were very prone to struggle. Typically in those cultures, it was very difficult. They many times became poor. They struggled with starvation. Many of them died because of a condition of being orphaned or widowed. They had lost the husband or lost a parent who was the typical provider to take care of them. And we have to recognize, again, put our mindset out of the American culture that we live in. In that day and in that culture, there was no such thing as government assistance. There was no such thing as social security. 
There was no such thing as life insurance if your husband died. There was no such thing typically as well, even usually very rare of having excess financial reserves or a 401k plan or a retirement plan. Again, these are ideas and things that exist in our culture particularly, but in that day, many people lived day by day. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. I've been to cultures before on mission trips, maybe some of you have as well, where people literally go out and they're a day laborer to be able to go buy food at the market in the evening to provide a meal for their family. So this was a culture where they didn't have a retirement plan. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have life insurance and government assistance. If they lost a husband who was the primary work and supplier for their household, they were in real jeopardy whether it was an orphan or a widow. And God had a special heart for orphans and widows. We see his compassion in the word of God to care for them, protect them, to defend them. Deuteronomy 10 says it this way. The Lord speaking of taking his own responsibility to take care of widows and orphans, he says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 146 says, the Lord relieves the fatherless and the widow. In Exodus 22, God says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will be aroused. In fact, even when we were going through our study in the book of Deuteronomy, you might remember, and those of you who are here on Wednesday evening, Deuteronomy 24 describes how when they would go through and glean their fields, that they were only to pass through once when they did their harvesting, and they weren't to go back a second time and harvest. They were to harvest once and not go and harvest a second time. Whatever excess remained, that was to be God's way of supplying for the widow or the orphan who could wander through and could partake of what was there in the field to help themselves. And then in the New Testament, of course, not only does James tell us that pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans, those who can't repay us or do something for us, but in the New Testament, one of Jesus's few resurrection miracles when he brought someone back to life, remember in Luke chapter seven, was when Jesus restored the only son of what? A widow. And as they were heading out of the town and everyone was weeping, it tells us the funeral processional procession was happening, and the young man who had died was a widow, and it says, and she was then also his, her only son. So this was like double jeopardy for this poor woman. She had already lost her husband, and she only had one son, and then the son died. So not only was she dealing with dual grief, but more than that, she was in a precarious situation because her husband died. She's already a widow. Now her only male son died who would have been the worker and the provider to sustain her in the workforce. So Jesus went over and said, do not weep. And he touched the coffin and he told the young man to arise and miraculously he came back from the dead. And it says, Jesus presented him back to his mother. He knew that woman was struggling, but more, he also knew that was her primary source to work and generate money. So Jesus chose in that situation to graciously restore the life of that young man so that he could go to work and kindly help and ensure stability for his mother as well. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 6, we see God's compassion towards widows understood in the early church, because remember in Acts 6, there's the account where almost it seemed like there was a widow distribution program, which is probably where some of our text 
finds its background, that there was some form of an assistance program to care for and distribute food and necessities to the widows. And remember, Acts 6 says that was growing progressively, and then it started causing problems in the church. So it is very likely, perhaps, here God gives in the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy some biblical principles to help navigate this widow's distribution program. This program that existed to financially help and care for widows in the church to do it in wise stewardship so that maybe a good thing with very good intentions didn't get out of balance because of not using enough judgment and criteria of how the church was to function and how families were also to be functioning, caring for their own relatives as well. So he says, look, when widows are really widows, and I'll talk about that more, he says, it is good. We should honor them, take care of them, provide for them, support them. But look what he says, verse 3, though that is good and acceptable for the church to financially assist in those unique, severe occasions, big key word, verse 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety, godliness at home, and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Another translation renders this verse here, but if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home by taking care of their own family and thereby repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is something that pleases God. In other words, the scripture teaches it is both a natural obligation and a religious duty from God's perspective to repay our aging relatives for the upbringing that they gave to us, for the investment that they put into our lives in raising us. It is okay if there is no other viable option or avenue for the church to step in to help in dire situations, in very difficult, severe circumstances, those who are unable to work, a severe struggling situation. But the Bible says, however, if that widow has adult children, and if that struggling widow is in a difficult place and needs assistance in any form, if there are adult children or adult grandchildren, that her family members, the Bible says, are to be the first line of responsibility to address that situation to become engaged and involved, to take care of their aging relative, that is what's morally right and proper. This, to me, is just another scripture that expounds upon the biblical command teaching that natural families are to take care of one another. Again, we many of us know the Old Testament passage, honor your mother and your father. Again, the same idea is implied in that. Honor your mother and father isn't just be respectful when you're still living in their home. Don't smart mouth. Don't. The, the idea encompasses way more than that when you understand the teaching of it. The idea there, honor your father and mother, implies more than just respect. It encompasses and includes taking on responsibility to honorably take care of them in their latter years. As they age and as they decline to find ways to care for them, as is needed. See, God understands something, and that is this, this reality. He's been around for a little while. God's been around from Adam and Eve. He's watched lots of families and lots of generations. 
And what God understands is eventually the process of family, life, does it not? It goes full circle, right? That's what family life does. Life goes full circle. First, the parents and the grandparents, they're taking care of the kids, changing their diapers, feeding them, making sure that they have what they need, supplying for them. And, And God charges parents as well as grandparents to do a really good job with that and to invest, and to care, and to train. But then eventually what happens? I know what happens. I just married off my third and final daughter. Then they become independent adults. And then they leave you weeping at home all by yourself as a husband and wife, (laughs) mourning your loss, right? Hoping somehow a few extra dollars in the budget will make you feel better about it. But that's what happens. Then they become independent. And then there's that season kind of that exists like that. But then all of a sudden... What happens as time progresses and and parents age, they become more needy of help and care and assistance. And then the process starts to kind of reverse itself. The roles start to reverse. And then the child, God says, needs to then sometimes gradually more and more. And as it progresses, it becomes more obvious. Then the child needs to start taking care of the grandparent and the parent, right? Because then what happens is as age happens and health declines and situations transpire, later on for a season, that child or grandchild needs to then render the same kinds of care to the parent or grandparent that was once rendered to them. As their health is declining and their finances may be struggling, and it's hard for the aging parent and grandparent, no doubt, losing that independence to admit when they need that help, to accept that help, that's tough. I'm not there yet. But I've watched the process of, you know, many a times. And again, it's a difficult thing. I have to imagine when you get to that stage, and I realize I will at some point, where then all of a sudden you have to almost accept the fact that your independence isn't safe anymore, that you need assistance. And and that's tough to navigate where a grandparent or, or, or a parent or a child or a grandchild is trying to kind of help the, the aging relative realize, look, you need to let me take it. You can't handle that anymore, and you got to let us be involved here and help. And, and that's a tough thing. Again, when they're so used to that, that was what they did their whole life, right? And they don't want to be a burden. And so there's a complexity to all of this, and it's difficult to navigate how to render that care to the aging relative and the complexities of that. Yet, the clear thing the Bible says is the responsibility for doing such as a first priority, God's design, it falls upon the family. That the family is to take care in an honorable way of their aging relatives. And God gives multiple reasons why, even here in verse 4. He tells us there are multiple reasons for the younger taking care of the older generation of their family. The first thing he says, it's our way as the younger generation to repay them. The idea is we owe it to them. That's what God's saying. You have a debt. They invested into you, and God says, now for a season, you owe it to them. It's a form of honorable repayment. He also says it's also a way that we learn how to show godly living at home first. He says that's another thing. They should first learn to show their piety, their godliness at home, repaying their parents in this way. So it's our way to learn really how to exercise our Christian walk as well as Christian ministry starting at home first. 
And the Bible teaches that our Christian walk and our Christian ministry should always be proved out first and foremost, not in front of other Christians on Sunday morning at church, but in the home, in the private sector, when the real you and the real me is living. That's the place where a Christian walk and Christian ministry is really proved out regarding being loving and serving and sacrificial and humble and being willing to be faithful in a place where, right, there's little recognition. There's not a whole lot of thanks at times that goes along together with that, but we do it as unto the Lord. And the best place to test our genuine spirituality is always in the household. It's always among the family. That's where our real spirituality is evidence. I've said many times before, God, nobody else, God gave me the greatest gift on my wedding day. It was my wife, and she's become a mirror for almost 28 years in my life. Because by living with her, she clearly allows me to constantly recognize who I really am in my walk with the Lord. And that's a good thing. I don't say that negatively. It's a wonderful thing. And the reality of where we're really at, how servant-hearted, how sacrificial, that gets proved out in the family life, God says. And that's really where we should learn. He says, first of all, we should be exercising piety and godliness at home. And when families care for one another and the younger generation takes care of the elder generation, he says, more than that, thirdly, another reason, he says, bottom line, it's good and acceptable to God. In other words, it pleases God. God says, that, that honors me. That may, I find pleasure in doing that. So again, if you're in the midst of that process, understand, it can be exhausting, difficult, complicated, draining, but, but you can know this, God's saying, I'm very well pleased that you're doing that. You're pleasing God by doing that. And it blesses God's heart. Notice, this is God's design, not, listen, not for the government, nor for the church to replace the role of the family. God does not want anything replacing the institution and the purpose of the family. The family has a purpose. And God is very clear here that each family is to take on that moral and spiritual responsibility to care for our relatives. The church is not supposed to do or replace what God created the family to do. There are certain things that the family was designed to do and intended to do that the government nor the church should be doing. I'll give you an example. It is not the church's foremost responsibility to train our children spiritually. We can provide a supplement to that. We can complement that in a children's ministry, but it is not the church's responsibility to train children spiritually. That's a parental responsibility. It is not the church nor the government's responsibility to pay our bills or to care even for the elderly. God says, that's what family's designed to do. And there are certain things that families can do best and will do best because they were meant to do it by God's design. So God gives this very wise instruction. It's where it teaches that among our families, this is the way we're to operate. And as the church, we should equip families and we should encourage and empower families to function according to God's design and to embrace their role in that way. Well, next Paul goes on here to describe and identify some of those who are, use this term, really widows. So he says families should take care of family first, but when widows are really widows and genuinely in a special place of need, he says, here's how you identify those maybe who the church should step in. 
and help out practically or support or care for them financially. He, he says, here's how you can tell. He gives some criteria in the next section. Now, she who is, here's that term again, really a widow or a widow indeed. The idea is a unique type of a widow, God's concern for the church to help out. And left alone, she trusts in God, verse 5, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So notice, the church was to evaluate the life of this widowed woman before they instantly brought her into this program of the list of widows and gave financial help. He says real widows who are to be enrolled into this ministry program the church was operating would be identifiable. And God shows some ways how here. First of all, he says one clear thing is she has truly been left alone, verse 5. The idea is in her situation, she has no more natural relatives. She's lost her husband. There are maybe no children to take care of her. And she is genuinely without a family. And so therefore, she's in a genuine desperate condition. She needs help sincerely and support and care because there's no family to participate naturally. Another thing he mentions is that in their godliness, these women, that they're already trusting in God and continuing in prayer night and day. In other words, these are women who were already trusting God as their provider foremost. These were women who their lives were characterized by great faith and deep prayer. They were women who were living as a widow, seeking God for, for care and for wisdom and provision. They were women who were already looking to the Lord with this beautiful prayer life that was very admirable. God, I need provision for this. Lord, I need you to supply at the end of the month the, the oil's running out, Lord. And, and these are women who were already depending upon God as their provider in a very godly way. And the point I think I want you to take note of and the Spirit's trying to indicate to us there is these were women who were already a part of the church family. These were godly women who were already a part of the local church family. They were not, listen, they were not random people coming to the church asking for money. These were ladies who were godly widows in the church that was already seeking God. It was the church simply here taking care of its own family, clearly knowing the situation because this is a part of the church family. This is one of our moms. Remember last week, the mothers in the church? This is one of our church moms, and we need to step in and be her kids because she doesn't have any kids that take care of her. But she's a godly woman, and she's someone who we know and we understand her situation. In other words, it was not a situation of guessing with random strangers who only came to the church asking if the church could give them money. And that's a common thing that happens at times. People come to the church as a random stranger, but the only reason they came to the church was because they were asking money. They weren't a part of the church. They're not, and so there's no awareness of any background or what the situation is there. They're just in a crisis situation. Look, one characterizing mark we can fairly say of orphans and widows, they didn't create that situation of financial distress. It just happened to them. And now they're in a dire situation. Now they're in a difficult spot. A widow or orphan does not bring their own problems upon themselves. That's a clearly evident thing. And that's why God's clearly concerned. Hey, this is just a crisis that came into their life. 
And so therefore, it is right to step in. They're a part of the church. We know them. This was a crisis situation that outside of their control. And look, verse 6, he even goes on to say, but she who lives in pleasure, in other words, maybe even a widow, but she's living indulging pleasure, he says, is dead while she lives. So here, God's cautioning against helping those widowed women, perhaps, who are really not in need of financial assistance, because in some way, he says, they're behaving carnally in selfish pursuits, living poorly. Perhaps there were some, sadly, who didn't care about God or others, and they were really just spending money foolishly and wastefully and self-indulgently, living, he says, for pleasure, kind of a self-driven life of just always trying to indulge pleasure and fulfillment. And again, listen, let me say, nothing wrong with pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure. He's going to say in the next chapter here that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with pleasure in moderation. The problem is, is when someone lives in pleasure. The idea is when they become someone who their, their idol is pleasure. And they basically live a life where they are driven with pleasurable self-indulgence, whether it's excess living or maybe it's substance abuse, and they basically are just living for the next high, living for the next form of pleasure, and, and they're just wasting money, squandering resources. They're not a person, contrary to verse 5, they're not a person who's godly and trying to live responsibly but is just really struggling in the process. They're someone, he says, verse 6 here, who's an individual who's just living with a pleasure-driven mindset, wasting money. And he says, verse 6, such people who are doing that, they're dead while they're still living. In other words, they're living in a self-destructive way, and they're dead to what really matters. The Bible's saying these are not the kind of people who are in real financial need, nor are they probably the type of people who one should consider helping. Some people, it is wiser to refrain from helping them financially for higher reasons of need in their life. See, it's a good thing to help people. That's what this section is about here. But there's a right way to help people, and there's also a wrong way to help people. And so God cautions with wisdom and discernment, help those who truly, emphasis under truly, need financial assistance, but giving financial help and using resources to help people who are going to wastefully squander it in just more pleasurable indulgences, God says, that's really not very healthy, nor is it very wise. Because I'll tell you this, helping self-seeking people who are addicted to pleasure, all that does is just prolong a bigger problem in their life. And so God says, you got to use wisdom, you got to use discernment. Verse 7, he says, and these things, these instructions, command that they may be blameless. In other words, these are instructions to be obeyed so that people don't become blamable in guilt for making wrong judgments in these matters. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Is it fair to say God doesn't mince words? He says things very directly. Here, God strongly cautions against the negligence and irresponsibility of doing what we should to provide sufficiently for our own family, for our own household. He identifies the potential error. 
if anyone does not provide for his own family, then he says, especially for his own household. Another translation renders this verse, if anyone fails to provide or care for his own family, particularly those who are living in his household. So what this describes is the error of not responsibly doing what it requires, listen, via work as well as financial management to sufficiently supply for basic living needs of one's own relatives living within one's household, where there is not enough money to adequately pay household bills, there's not sufficient resources and income to handle basic living expenses, and therefore it is causing undue stress and undue struggle upon the family because of this negligence, forcing then oftentimes others to have to step in and supply money because financial obligations are not being met responsibly in a way that they properly should be. And look, whatever the excuses and whatever the reasonings for that error, negligence of duty, and there can be many, and I'll go so far as to say this, having been a Christian for some time and a pastor for a considerable amount of time as well, sadly, even sometimes those excuses and reasonings come across as hyper-spiritual reasons. And God just cuts through that and says very strongly, if someone does not provide for his own, especially for those within his own household, God says, look what he says in verse 8, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God's view of that is that it's morally wrong and sinful, God says. Not to mention, it is a very bad example as a Christian. He strongly reproves this wrong conduct as a shameful Christian lifestyle. And he says, this is something that makes one guilty of, look at verse 8, he says, it makes a person guilty if they do that of denying the faith. It doesn't mean losing one's salvation. What he means is, to do that is a denial of the Christian faith. And here's why. Because it's a complete denial of what the Christian faith represents. Love and servanthood and sacrifice and stewardship and faithfulness and all the things that are encompassed. It's a complete denial of what the whole Christian faith represents, he says. It's a complete countercultural way of living to what Christianity, to be lazy or selfish or unwise or foolish, he says that's a total denial of what the faith represents. And then he goes on to say, if that weren't strong enough, a person doing such, he then adds, by the Holy Spirit's direction, is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch! Worse than an unbeliever. In other words, if someone does that, they're not properly providing for their household. God says it's not a small infraction. God says that is a major error behaving worse than a pagan, worse than an unsaved person who lives out in the world being negligent of that family duty. And the reason is, and here's the reasoning, which is very sensible to me, even unsaved people, even people who live out in the world that don't know God, they don't care about God, you know, they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, they don't have the truth of the Word of God, even unsaved pagan people in a natural, honor-bound sense of duty understand, I got to take care of my household, I got to work hard 
and pay my bills, and I got to do what I got to do to make sure I take care of my... Even unsafe people understand that. And he says, so if an unconverted person understands and takes those responsibilities seriously, how much worse when a Christian disregards it? When a Christian is negligent in that area, God says, man, that's worse than an unbeliever. That's a very shameful thing, God says. Let me give a, a word of advice in connection to two potential causes of the error strongly described in verse 8. Those two things, the two things that can cause that kind of error in verse 8 are two simple things. Lack of income and lifestyle choice. Lack of income and lifestyle choice. Because both things contribute to that. Sometimes it's lack of income and you got to do something to generate more income and do what you got to do. Other times, another connecting piece is lifestyle choice, is maybe the lifestyle choice and the standard of lifestyle needs to be adjusted. Or maybe you went a little too far in lifestyle choice and now you can't substantiate because of lifestyle choice. And so those things need to be evaluated. If that's a struggle, God says that's not something to be ignored, but something to be reconciled. Now, verse 9, he goes on to give some of the criteria to select who to enroll into this list of widows. He comes back to this, verse 9. He then says, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, that is, into the program, enrolled in the list, unless she's been the husband, excuse me, the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she's brought up children, lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet and relieved the afflicted, verse 10, and if she's diligently followed every good work. So Paul says, don't let a widow be taken into the number unless she meets some criteria. He actually lays out criteria for benevolence help. He actually lays out qualifications when he says there, verse 9, to be taken into the number, the language is to be enrolled onto a list. So clearly there was some type of a, a uh, setup that existed, some arrangement, a program of widow care that had certain criteria to get on it to qualify, and many believe even had some duties in connection to it. It's believed, we can't be 100% certain, that this was some type of an enrolled program that they established where perhaps the widow would serve to commit and do things and use her time to minister to people and so forth. And then the church, in connection to that, would take on her care and would provide for her and support her. And there was this mutual arrangement where both were blessed. But notice, he says, there were certain criteria to be used to qualify to receive that financial help. One of them, he says there, first of all, was an age limit. Look what it says. It says she had to be 60 or above to qualify for this benevolence assistance. Now, understand, that's in a time period where age expectancies were usually around the 40s or the 50s. So it's implying she's clearly elderly because life expectancy is around 40 or 50. So if you're 60 or above, you're in that elderly category, particularly in that generation. So there was an age limit. She also had to be a woman clearly of godly character. You can tell by what's described there, the wife of one husband. So she was a loyal, devoted wife. She had a reputation for being an admirable woman with a good, strong marriage. She was already well reported of for good works. That is, she had a great reputation. People in the body of Christ admired her. She wasn't doing these things to, hey, well, what do I got to do to get some of the widow assistance? What do I got to do to get some money from the church? No, she was already doing these things, he says. 
This was criteria to identify the kind of woman she already was. He says she had brought up children, both her own, and it was very common in the early church to take orphaned kids who were abandoned by the Roman Empire when people didn't want their children, they'd give birth to them and then they would just leave them aside to die. So whether it was raising her own children or taking in orphaned children, she sacrificially cared and raised children and nurtured and trained them. She had lodged strangers, so she was a hospitable, giving woman. She had washed the saints' feet. That was humble servanthood. She was someone who had a a, a reputation for being a servant. She had relieved the afflicted, so she had done things to care for other hurting people. She had a reputation for being someone who, when she saw hurting, afflicted people, she would do things to take care of them. And he says she was diligent following every good work. So she just was a good, godly, hardworking woman. We might say a stellar, godly woman, a mother within the church who lived a righteous, productive life, blessing many, and now she's in a time of need in her latter years. And God says, that's the kind of lady you better get involved and help out with. That's the kind of woman who should be enrolled and helped in that list. But notice what he's clearly saying in verse 9. Do not let a widow who doesn't meet these criteria be put on the list. In other words, the language is in the negative. What he's saying is don't enroll and supply financial help to just everyone. Don't do that. They have to meet this criteria. Don't just help anyone and everyone who appears to have a need. There was criteria to be met. The church had a duty to give money in a way of judgment and discernment to those who it clearly identified genuinely qualified for it. And look, this is important because let me say, and some may find this offensive, but it's just true. The church is not a bank. Nor is the church intended by God's design to be a universal welfare line. God has created the church to be a spiritual institution, and God's word describes benevolence, assistance, financial help to those in need in this section of the word of God. And it is very evident God was saying, when you do it, use qualifications, use criteria. When I was pastoring back at Calvary Chapel of York, my assistant pastor was on staff with me. He did a lot of our administrative stuff. And he wonderfully, taking the truths from this passage, he literally created an application so that when people came to the church, random strangers, can you do this? Can you pay my bills? Can you? He'd give them an application. And he said, look, well, okay, well, we, we have, we, this is a benevolence assistance form. Can you, and, and 90% of people, I hate to say, typically, as soon as you hand an application, oh, I thought this was a church. It is. The difference is we read the Bible, you don't. And you never even came here until you had a need for money. So isn't that kind of strange? And, and so here he says, there's some qualifications. Now, look, some may hear those things and say, oh, that's very unloving. That's not loving. That's not. That's what God said. I didn't. If you genuinely look at the word of God, that's what's in the word of God. I'm not opposed to helping people and showing compassion and showing care. But sometimes I think as Christians, we take God's resources and we're stirred by emotional need. And we just start throwing emotional need of finances everywhere. And God says there needs to be judgment in such things. It's not unloving. It's stewardship, God says. Verse 11, he goes on to say, but refuse, look what he says, the younger widows. For when she has begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. 
and having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. So Paul here advises, don't permit the younger widows, the idea is under 60, to be involved, involved in this widow's program where they receive financial support in exchange for service to Christ and service to the church. What this describes here, understanding human nature as God's created us, God sees some of the challenges that could come to pass if they just started enrolling these younger widows into this program. A younger widow, think of it, when her husband first dies, she is enduring significant trauma and grief. And on top of the trauma and grief, the last thing that she's also thinking about is someday getting remarried to another man. On top of that, she's having concern, oh my goodness, how am I going to sustain myself financially? Maybe she's a younger widow. How am I going to take care of my kids now that my husband has passed? And so here she is going through this pain and grief. And in the midst of all that, it would seem like a very viable thing to, you know what? Maybe the best thing to do is I should just go on the widow's program. Maybe I should just go. I don't want to get married. I, don't, I would never want to marry anyone else again. I could never think of that. And so let me just go to the church. I'll enroll in the widow's program. I'll just serve Christ. I'll dedicate my life to the church. And I'll let them ensure that I'll be taken care of. But see, God understands that time has a way to heal things. And that as time passes and healing comes from that kind of trauma, the initial strong, severe pain can begin to diminish some and life balances out. And then in time, all of a sudden, this younger widow, her desire for romantic companionship starts to reawaken. And then all of a sudden, now this pledge of faith to Christ and never marry again, now it becomes a struggle. Because now all of a sudden she finds herself being open and wrestling because her desires to perhaps be with a man again are overpowering this previous pledge to singleness and to be a part of the widow's program. And now she's feeling condemned. Oh, man, I pledge to be single and just be a part of the widow program the rest of my days. And a cute new guy finally came to church. What do I do? And all of a sudden, she's finding herself. She meets a wonderful, godly man, and there's this legitimate reality of a potential new marriage. But yet she feels condemned, Paul says, because she's cast off her first faith or her first pledge. And then she begins to struggle and feels confused and perplexed. So Paul says the better approach is if you really love that young widow as she's processing the grief and the hardship, don't prematurely put her onto that widow program. Don't do that. Because you don't know what God's plan is for her future. You don't know if God has a better way to take care of her long term. God may bring a wonderful godly man into her path in the future down the road, and that may be the way that God wants to take care of her. And you don't want to rob her of something that God may have potentially if God has a better plan and it's God's plan for her to one day remarry. Paul says here, verse 13, and besides, that is the younger widows, if they came on prematurely, they can learn to be idle wandering about from house to house. Perhaps they don't have enough to do, so not having enough to do, and they're going here, visiting that person, talking about this, talking about that, and then the talking about this, talking about that starts to cause a problematic situation with idle time. They could become gossips, busybodies, saying things which they all not ought to say. So again, the danger, idle time, is the devil's what? Workshop, the Bible says. So he says, this is another risk. Not only you may rob her of a future with a good godly man that maybe God wants to bring into her life to bless her in a different season ahead. 
but he says you also may lead her down a path where instead of being busily occupied, though it may be hard, instead of being busily occupied as this younger widow trying to figure out, okay, what do I got to do? I got to work now and take care of my children, which might have actually been a safeguard and protector. He said, you may send her down a path where you take away from her what she would have been productively doing, and then she gets into trouble doing other things. So he says, use judgment. Don't let that happen. And then look what he says, verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some, verse 15, have already turned aside after Satan. Now notice, God's word instructs for the younger widows, and again, this would be those under 60, he instructs for the younger widows to pursue a pathway of future domestic life. He literally says the younger widows, this is what they should do. They should be open and seek to remarry, to re-engage in domestic life. They're still young enough. The benefits of that are healthy. It's a safeguard to them. It helps them, a life companion, a partner, someone to help provide. And, and look, I want to say this this morning. Don't automatically assume in widowhood that the most spiritual thing to do is to remain single. That may seem sentimental, and I say this all love, that may seem emotionally appropriate, but marriage is a good thing. It's a good thing. So don't just assume, oh, I've been widowed, and so therefore the right thing to do is just in some honorable way to just stay single. The Bible, not me, the Bible, God's word encourages right here in the text, those widows under 60 God says they should try and remarry. They should look for a way to re-engage as a widowed person. If that's part of God's will, they should remain open to that. Now listen, you need to follow the Holy Spirit, but I just want to encourage you that God emphasizes the value of marriage because marriage is something very helpful for all of us. It meets human needs in our life. It helps us to have companionship and not struggle in certain ways, to have a partner. It keeps us on track morally and spiritually. It helps us protect against human weaknesses and even the devil's own traps in our lives. And so here, God's word, notice, says, look, don't be opposed to this. And let me say in connection to these verses as well, because I think it's very important to recognize that God's word instructs and encourages the Christian wife in the Bible here to be foremost domestic. Do you see what he says there in verse 14? He says that the younger widows would marry, bear children, and manage the house. One translation says, take care of their homes. That's what an all-wise God recommends in marriage a wife would primarily give her foremost attention to. Household management. Titus 2 says that the older, wiser, mature women in the church should teach and admonish the younger women these things, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, and to be homemakers. That's what God's word teaches is his design predominantly. Now look, despite the modern American cultural trends, which have not served our society very well, nor have they served families very well. God knows how marriage and family works and what is best. And his idea is that the foremost focus of a wife, biblically, 
is to give her primary purpose and energy to managing her household, to being a homemaker first and foremost as a primary purpose. And I know, listen, I know that's not easy financially. I fully understand that. We did that process for 15 years, and you have to be wise. And if you're going to do that, you may have to make sacrifices. You may have to take certain lifestyle choices that are different than the American culture and make adjustments. But I can tell you as a personal testimony, it works wonderfully. And there are many blessed benefits. And some may look at me and say, oh, because and, and, what I'm saying is not politically correct. It is not. It is not. It is not politically correct. But I'll die saying I believe it's biblically accurate. I do. I just don't think it's traditional. Oh, well, traditional. Yeah, it's true. But it really, from a scriptural standpoint, is something very wonderful, very healthy. And I'll tell you, because when that transpires and that dynamic exists, something wonderful happens because a wife appreciates her husband deeply because she says, I depend upon you. I need you. See, when a wife outpaces and outworks her husband and the dynamics get all reversed in that kind of thing, here, and I've seen this pastorally, she looks at her husband and she, her mentality towards him is, what do I need you for? I, don't really, I really don't need you. I mean, yeah, you take out the trash, but what do I really need you for? But when it's happening that way, oh, what? I need you. I need you. And then when the wife is predominantly foremost giving her attention to managing the household, he's deeply appreciating her. Because when he comes home after chasing down the deer all day long, and she's got yesterday's deer on the table, he's going, oh, baby. Whoa. You look incredibly hot. I do. I, I didn't even get a shower today. And all he's smelling is the venison on the table, right? And, and, and something real, I'm telling you, something really wonderful. Genuinely, it does something very wonderful happens. And notice the Bible even cautions of the danger of when we neglect God's designs and we invert things. Please don't miss what he says there. He says, here's what I'm encouraging, verse 14, so that you give no opportunity to the adversary for some have already turned aside after Satan. Wow, did we miss that part? God's cautioning here, when we disengage from his design and neglect his domestic design for families, we can give Satan more opportunity to wreak havoc in homes and families and marriages. And I can tell you pastorally, I have seen it firsthand, seen it many, many times. So again, my simple encouragement is embrace and appreciate to the best of your ability God's ideas and God's design for families. It's wonderful. It works. If you're a young person, prepare for that. If you're, you know, for us as husbands, look, we should do everything we can, gentlemen, everything we can in our power through work and wise financial management to free up our wives to give them the best chance to give their highest energy to the family, to give their highest energy to the household. Verse 16, Paul just repetitiously states, if any believing man or woman has widows... Third time he said it, let them relieve them and don't let the church be burdened so that it can relieve those who are really widows. So he comes back to the same idea and he says, look, families should take care of their families 
because then the church doesn't become overburdened stepping in where it shouldn't step in so that the church can be freed up when legitimate situations exist, when someone who really has a dire financial need, the church isn't so drained and so depleted that it can't step in in those situations. Again, the church foremost is a spiritual institution and is supposed to be a base of spiritual ministry to help people spiritually. Should we at times assist financially? Absolutely. And we have and we do as a congregation. The important thing is God's design and balance and not inverting priorities and realizing that family takes care of family naturally and spiritually. Let's stand together. Let's pray.